Hello everyone, welcome to our second finance forum. So following on from our successful football and finance forum that we had at the end of last year, we're now here to discuss fashion and finance. So I'm joined with um, some, some brilliant experts from the world of fashion. I'm going to let them all introduce themselves. So um, I'll go straight away and at the top of my screen, I have Sasha. So um, afternoon, Sasha, could I just you know, ask you to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so um, my name's Sasha Ramdu. Um, I've worked in the industry for a long time. Can't actually think how long off the top of my head, but well over 20 years. Um, I started working for Debenhams um, in buying, and I also worked for Marks and Spencers in buying, as well as Mossbrass, I think, at the beginning. So um, the last role I had was a senior buyer buying swimwear and holiday shop. So I really um, say, lingerie and swimwear are kind of my areas of expertise I've also bought everything from jewellery sunglasses lots of different product categories um at the moment um I moved sector slightly and um I'm now helping support uh startup businesses so um doing a variety of things um I'm a business advisor um for a company called Fashion Angels who uh, a government-backed scheme that supports finance um, sort of loans to businesses. Um, I lecture for London, London College of Fashion. Um, so I tend to lecture fashion business planning as well as um, buying lingerie and swimwear. And um, I also mentor and consult various various brands that are starting up. So a few different things. <laughs> So that's the full range from massive, massive high streets yeah. um, to, to startup brands that are, are really just yeah. taking their first steps on, you know, from conception of, of an idea or a concept into actually starting to deliver it. So huge range of experience there. Excellent, yeah. Sasha. Um, I just move on. Um, Paul, welcome aboard. Thank you, David. And thanks, Sasha. The first thing I'd like to say, David, love the fact and thank you for inviting me to the Fashion and Finance Forum very disappointed to hear I missed the football and finance forum. And as a passionate Spurs supporter, I think I maybe should have been invited, but delighted to be here, but disappointed I've, met, I've missed the football one and I'll, I'll, catch, up, I'll catch up on that later. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Paul Clifford. I've um, spent a long time in retail, very traditional start, very corporate start with Marks and Spencers and Debenhams, then took a, probably a slightly more adventurous route beyond that as my career progressed, spent a, bit, a little bit of time with TK Maxx in the early noughties when they were very much a, a sort of pioneer in retail. Then I, I definitely moved from a bit of an adventurous start to a fun-packed five years and summers. I sat on the board at fun and summers for five years. The content and description of that is probably worth the podcast in itself, but great time and summers, wonderful little business. I then spent five or six years over in the Middle East franchising, so lovely uh, Permatan all year round, and um, my current role just now, I run the commercial side of the operation at QVC. What does run the commercial side of the operation mean? Probably I wear two hats just now. I, I lead and look after our buying, merchandising, planning, and programming teams, so provide some leadership and direction to the teams that we ask to go out and buy, source, and get the world's best brands into our portfolio. And then the second part, of my, the second part of my role, the second hat, and it's probably more tied into this group of people is very much um, accountable for the top half of the PL, the top half of the PL, that really nasty part that about sales and net revenue and demand and inventory and margins and cost of goods that, that can make businesses go, oh my goodness, what's going on here? But the exciting part of the business. And I think the um 
I think the partnership there, who I partner with is the CFO who then run that sort of bottom part of the, um, the, the P&L, the logistics, the OPEX, the CAPEX, et cetera, the wages that we like to be starts. And I think together when we talk about fashion and finance, certainly in all industries, you know, the finance team, the, the, their main partners are, are key, but that link between fashion and finance is critical in a retailer, particularly around purchasing, which can roll into millions of hundreds of millions of pounds worth. So between my role, which is one of my hats, the fashion hat, and then the finance hat around that P&L, I partner with our CFO to try and make sure that all the decisions we make, make a little bit of EBITDA for our shareholders and our parent US company. And thank you very much for the invite, David. No problem at all, Paul. Um, I am just trying to think, we did football and finance, this is fashion and finance, and with your Anne Summers um, background, I'm just wondering what F we could come up with to put football <laughs> finance yeah. for the next one. <laughs> Fun. Fun. Yes. Fun. Um, <laughs> so Mark, if I could just move on to you, Mark. So uh, I'm Mark. I'm the brand director of CyberJamming. So um, compared to Sasha and Paul, my uh, my list of jobs is remarkably short. Um, I've uh, I've spent an awful long time doing staying in one particular area. So I've been in my current role for the last 18 years. So we've seen the brand grow from absolutely tiny to multi millions, which is which is very enjoyable and very rewarding. And uh, when I first started in the role, I had hair um, and I have significantly less of it. So there's an, an awful lot of stress that goes with it, but it was, it's, it's been a fantastic journey. Prior to that, um, I, was, I had a, uh, Paul and I have shared a decent amount of time working together at Marks and Spencer. Um, so, and so I did that for eight years. And within that, I spent four years um, being the merchandiser of Ladies Nightwear. So I've got about 25 years of experience all in nightwear. Um, so I've got, uh, I've, whereas these guys have got a nice width, uh, a nice wide width of experience, mine is very, very deep um, in the nightwear sector. Excellent. Thanks for that, Mark. And, and we'll, we'll come to it later on, but I know that, um, that I think the, the pandemic may have helped you slightly with that kind of the, the move to loungewear and things like that, but I think we'll save that for five, 10 minutes. And our, our final, our final guest today is Sean. So good afternoon, Sean. Yes. Good afternoon. And um, as your previous speaker said, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Um, so I'm the founder of the retail practice. Uh, I'm a lifelong retailer having started at H&M while I was at college. Uh, wonderful business and actually I I think if it hadn't been for H&M I don't think I'll be in retail today um, and from H&M I then uh, held various head office roles in visual merchandising and marketing across what I mentioned earlier was originally called the Burton Group became the Arcadia Group so was marketing manager at Dorothy Perkins, uh, Evans uh, took Burton menswear online in 1998 um, and then held a digital role across the group before um, joining quite a, an exodus of Arcadia people who went to Tesco um, when uh, the grocer decided to get serious about clothing. So through various iterations of doing a licensing arrangement with Cherokee, if anyone remembers that, um, we then created FNF at Tesco to really rival Georgia Asda. Um, and then finally moving on into the corporate world to join Mossbrost Group, 
uh, as marketing director um, around 2008, 2009. I did two years there where I met a guy called Philip Mountford, who then became the CEO of uh, one of my current clients. He invited me to join the business, but at that point I decided to fulfill a long-held ambition, which was to start my own communications agency. Um, I was always uh, suggesting how other people could do it, so it was probably the time that I needed to, to step up and do it myself. So in 2010, I created, uh, actually at the time, Sean Murray Marketing. Um, that had various iterations in around 2012, 2013, became the retail practice. Um, and yeah, uh, Brexit, pandemics, and now a war, we're still here um, in 2022. And uh, most of our business now is with European clients. Uh, we've extended slightly out of retail into lifestyle. So we work for hotels and home, furnish uh, home furnishing, interior design companies. But I guess our heart is in what I call emotionally driven retail, uh, rather than the more rational side that I certainly experienced in, uh, in Tesco. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Excellent. Th thanks. To, thanks. Uh, and it, it seems from, from kind of you know, going through everyone's, everyone's bios there, that there, there's a common theme of Marks and Spencer, which I think runs through. And then there's, there's a kind of lots of overlap in terms of brands. And it, it, would it be true to say that the, the, the fashion industry is is a relatively kind of small industry where there's lots of people moving kind of from the same sorts of businesses because that's certainly what it's like in the world of finance. I think that's fair, David. One of the things that I always talk about is retails about relationships. The relation you never know who's around the next corner. You never burn your bridges. But I think I don't want to say it's incestuous. I think that would be the wrong word, David. But certainly it's quite a tight knit fashion community and the people you meet. You know, at the start of the career, it's quite nice to evolve and develop your career and see them evolving and developing at the same time. And those deep networks and relationships that you can create, I think, are essential for healthy retail and healthy retailers. Mm, yeah, it's, I'd say very, very similar with finance. And we, we always tell a lot of our students that, it's, you know, as you say, don't burn your bridges if you're leaving one employer because finance is a relatively small group of group of people. Um, Sean? No, I've got to build on what... Um, Steve said, you know, it, it for us, I've always thought, uh, particularly fashion retail, is as much an art as it is a science. Mm -hmm. So I think people look for others who share that type of approach that not everything can be measured or analyzed. Um, and the second, certainly when I grew up in it, and thank God it's changing, is the culture can be very competitive. So mm -hmm. you almost have to love it in order to put aside the, the, the slightly more challenging aspects of the industry. But now I think particularly with some of the European fashion retailers we work with, such as Zalando and people, they have a much, I think, more uh, value-driven culture than perhaps the one I grew up with that still exists, I think, in some retailers. So I think for that reason, you tend to get into the industry and then stick in it and then find like-minded people. Okay, thanks. Thanks, that. So it was it was striking as as I just heard the same kind of names being mentioned by each of you, and then all of you having very different careers now, but um, that kind of almost the same kind of like breeding grounds that's got or kind of backgrounds. Um, I, I wanted to start in terms of questions by um asking each of you about your views on what the objectives 
of either the businesses you work for or businesses that you're familiar on. The reason I ask this is that we always ask our students to evaluate businesses and to, to think as if they were running those businesses. And one of the first questions I always ask is, what's the objective of this insurance firm or something like that? And the first question, that the answer that always comes back is to make money and make as much money as possible. But then as you actually analyze most businesses, you realize that, yes, that is un an objective, but there's also something else there. And I, I spoke to someone that dealt with, with luxury cars a while ago, and they said that their Ferrari dealership could make more money if only they could get more Ferraris. But Ferrari deliberately restricts the number of vehicles that can come into the country in any year because they want to create scarcity, because they're, they're, they, they care so much about the brand and want to keep the brand special. They don't want to flood the market. So they deliberately are saying, they're saying, well, we're happy making this amount of money because we've got this other objective. So I just wondered kind of what the objectives of so the businesses that you work with or the businesses that, that you run or the businesses in your case, Mark, well, I think we'll start with you, the business that, that, that you're running at the moment. Look, I think, um, you know, when it, whenever a business gets up and running, you, you, your first thought is we want to make money. Um, you know, it, it, we're all here. We're all here to progress. Um, we, we want to see our sales go up. We're all, the, the fact we've all been in retail for this long, we get a buzz off of sales. Um, having said that, in, in order to establish a business, so, you know, in our case, we've got, a, we've got a nightwear brand that's now over 20 years old. There needs to be a lot, lot, lot of thought and effort put into how that business is going to run and what, the, what you know, in our case, pyjamas. Um, ours has very much been about making sure we maintain the highest standards of fabric production. Um, I know we're going to touch on it later, but, you know, we've, we've always been about sustainability. Um, and so that has been a key, you know, there, there's some very, very strong threads that run through our business that are quite costly and actually do not help um, necessarily put money on the bottom line. But what they do do is they generate brand awareness. They, you know, people, real strong brand loyalty. Um, and I think without them, so, you know, it, it, it's playing the long game with, with, with the profit side of the business. Um, yeah, I th you know, fr from our point of view, quality, durability, um, and, you know, touching people's lives in a, in a good way are, are just as important as the bottom line. Excellent. I, I, I hope it was an intentional pun that you threw in talking about the common threads that run through your brands. That was, I thought that was wonderful. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm just imagining now that all your conversations at home now must be kind of somehow fabric related or have some kind of fabric related pun in them. Um, Sasha, can I just ask about the, the, say, say the kind of the small brands that you're starting to that, that you're working with that are just in that formative stage? You know, what do they see as kind of their objective and what they're trying to achieve? Yeah, so um, I'd say most of um, the clients I work with, they tend to be creatives. So they have a fantastic idea <clears throat> and they don't actually know how to move it forward or they think, you know, they, they sort of have an idea, but some parts of it are missing. So how we like to work. So this is when I'm consulting or when I'm assessing for a business loan is making sure all aspects of the business have been considered. So the way that I think about it, I mean, we actually use a lot of cash flows and I encourage a lot of my um, applicants to use cash flows. And being a buyer, I wasn't great with spreadsheets at the beginning because my merchandiser never let me touch them. Um, so 
but now I find them to be invaluable. So, you know, we really focus in on all aspects from the beginning concept, like, do you have the right customer? Do you have the right target audience? How are you going to market yourself? Um, how are you going to buy your goods? How much is it going to cost you? Um, and making sure the pot of money that they have, because often with startups, financials are the limitations. Um, how is that going to be spread across to all the areas of the business to allow them to launch? Um, because for a lot of startups, launching is you know the point that they want to get to, but also allowing them to get to that point. Um, often I work with some brands that have spent all their money doing the development and they've got no money to actually get to launch. Um, so it's really important um, you know, from that side of things to make sure, um, you know, the key objectives is to make sure that, you know, they've thought through the whole process. So that's where the corporate side kind of helps because we did it day in, day out. Yeah, that, I mean, that's something that I know that um, I think a lot of our students always struggle with when they look at, at, at projects and evaluating the, um, the, the cost of developing a product, a product, product or a project. They always think about the cost to launch and then they don't think about the cost that you need afterwards and, and, and not necessarily the cost of the cash flow that you need afterwards in order to enable it to succeed. And mm. um, so, yeah, I, I think, yeah, especially and that's me dealing with people that are six months away from being qualified accountants. Yeah. That struggle to do that. If we've got people that have got no financial background, I can completely understand how, you know, you just think I've, I've created this amazing thing. Now people can buy it, so it's a lot more that needs to happen yeah, after. Because often things like marketing are completely, oh yeah, we'll think about that later. But in this day and age where it's online retail predominantly for startups, especially, they don't have any money to do their marketing, so they're not going to attract their customers. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of um, applicants, particularly for the loans, who need money just to do marketing. Paul, oh, can I turn to you and just find out at QVC, what, what do you see as your kind of key objectives being? First, sorry to disappoint, David, but in retail, you know, I'm, I'm going to give the stock answer. You know, we'd like to grow our top line and profit line a little bit quicker than we have in the past. And I think whilst I mean, you're right to reference that, but I think, you know, certainly in retail, you're only as good as your last day's trade, your last week's trade. And I think that unrelenting <coughs> focus in the top line is critical. So that that is our primary objective. It goes a bit deeper than that, though, as you've said, you know, there's some things I'll talk about. We'd like to grow our customer base and I'll expand on that in a second. We'd like to extend our reach, i.e. how many people know about us and interact with us and sell from us. We also have got a really passionate community. You know, some of our numbers and customers will buy more than 100 times a year from us. So it's really about expanding and engaging that passionate community. But just in terms of objectives, so what I talk about, just, just to be really clear, in retail, if you're pursuing a career in retail, it is about trade and it's about growing your top line and bottom line. That's the nub of it. There's a couple of things we are looking at just now in terms of, you know, short-term goals or short-term objectives. One of them is delivering organic growth. So we set ourselves quite modest organic growth objectives year and year. And what I mean by organic growth objectives at a very simple level is better product, better products, better brand portfolio, and better values that really tap into our customers' lifestyle. So when we look at our product portfolio, you know, we probably have any one time a thousand brands on the website. Over the course of a year, we'll put 30 or 40,000 different products in front of our customers and they will buy probably about, I'll get this number wrong, but there or thereabouts, maybe about 18 million things from us. So there's quite a lot of decisions you need to, before you even think about the future, there's quite a lot of spinning plates you've got around those 
brand's portfolio and 18 million sales that you want to make. And that's, we try and get that right in terms of organic growth. But then I think importantly for us and for many other retailers, you can't just live on product brand. There's, there's things we class as strategic initiatives. What's the business going to look like in 2025? What's the trajectory to help us get there for 2025? Across the organization, there's probably 30 or 40 strategic initiatives that are part of our objectives. Big ones or main ones would be digital replatform. Um, all retailers, I think, are investing in their digital capability, ease of use, experience in the customer. But all these that's apart from the basics of is it easy to navigate and what's the journey like? Advanced analytics, I can see a retail world that in 20 years' time doesn't, sadly won't have me in it, sadly won't have Mark in it, sadly won't have um, Sean or Sasha, but it will be populated by machines and artificial intelligence. And I think we're certainly going along this advanced analytics route. We're investing a lot of time, effort and brain power in that sort of science you referred to, the, the art and flair of retailing versus the science of numbers. Big push for us in social strategy and brand marketing. Influence, influencers, influencers are the new retailers discuss. You know, if I had a magic wand and could get one of the Kardashians to showcase one of our products, you know, I'd be a hero, but I can't get that. But if, if, I, if I bring that down from that extreme, there's certainly rich areas that we can plow there in this social world to, to expand our reach. I've talked about, yes, brand marketing, think, you know, QVC, think, you know, again, we've got a lot of legacy thinking and behaviours that people associate with our business. We're going to have to throw some money in that to maybe change some of those perceptions. And um, yes, a lot of movement and live streaming from us and other retailers, another thing we want to get into. More interactive TV experiences, again, about engaging that community. And then we see objectives going into white spaces. White spaces defined as areas we're not in just now. I won't go into what they may be, but there's certainly many, many product types and categories that we feel sit very nicely within our business that we're not quite able to um, um, play into any significant extent. So our objectives, yes, there's a lot of short-term ones. That's doing what we do today a little bit better, products, brands, and values. By the way, that's not easy. And then there's also longer-term things, medium to long-term, which we call strategic initiatives. And I think probably most retailers would have that balance between near-term thinking and then longer-term um, plans and strategies. Uh, I, I like the fact that you started your answer with, I'm going to be really boring here and say it's all about profit. And then you, you probably came up with about 20 different things that are kind of like objectives that you have that are, you know, I, I always think of those as, yes, your profit is your, your, your North Star that you're aiming towards, but these are the 20 things that we need to do to, to deliver value. And that value will turn into profits longer term. So I, I'm really interested, particularly when you talk about um, analytics in your world as well, because it's something that we as accountants are very much looking at is the role that analytics is going to have in taking away a lot of the work that we as finance professionals do and really it's a really interesting one David it's a really interesting one of my and I know this isn't one of the topics but it's one of the things certainly related in finance and retail I think retailers have maybe in my opinion may become a little bit too obsessed with the analytics and numbers and maybe over the years maybe lost a little bit of flair about what retail is all about, that product, brand, experience, and excitement. We can go through the rest. Of, you can go through, David, Shelley, Mark, the rest of your lives without buying anything from my business because you don't need it. And I think our job is to make you want something and need something. And that flair and ability of brilliant buyers, brilliant merchants, you know, to really surprise and delight our customers and make them sit up and take note, that's never going to be replaced by machines. So I think one of the challenges for 
all of us in this retail involves is how do you strike the right balance then between really valuable insight and actionable insight that you can get that you otherwise wouldn't have known yourself without making sure that you don't encourage teams and people to really keep that flair. But I think that's the way the world's going for sure. And finally, Sean, what, what are your views? I know you work with a number of different brands on those kind of those objectives that those brands would have. Yeah, so I mean, Paul's point at the towards the end, I think, around it almost paraphrasing, but being a combination of strategy and tactics is, I think, really important. The way I think about my own business, which is a provider of marketing to retailers, but also encourage my clients to think about it, is that cash and profit is a means to an end. So I wouldn't even describe it as a North Star. What I would try and capture as a North Star is that bigger purpose. And a lot in the press recently about purpose, with lots of people deriding it, I think they get confused with ESG-related purpose, which is the sort of environment, social, and governance side of purpose. And that's great. I think it's brilliant that we have brands out there that want to take a more socially driven purpose. But purpose doesn't have to be socially driven. It could be just simply, and I was actually doing some work on purpose earlier and I had to look up IKEA's purpose. And it's basically to allow the maximum number of people to have the best possible homes. So, you know, they've taken that very democratic view of it. And that's their purpose. And then the P&L and everything else supports the purpose. So if you don't drive the sales and you don't drive the profit, then you're not going to have any budgets and you can't do your business. So where I always start is what's your purpose? And, you know, you could simply, if you were certain retailers that are no longer on the scene that we may remember, simply have the purpose of making as much money as possible. But you're probably going to burn, burn out at some point. So I think if, you're, if you can articulate what your bigger purpose is, and as I said, it doesn't have to be, uh, sustainability based or environmentally based it can be just to make people's lives a bit better or easier or more convenient and all of those things then the rest is a means to an end and within that your ability to make profit and generate sales and grow market and reach and all of those things is absolutely instrumental and it's amazing how many clients we have who struggle over their purpose and what we see a lot is if you talk to someone in the buying team versus the marketing team versus the ops team, they will all have a slightly different view on what that purpose is. So again, what we try and do is bring people together and share that sense of purpose. Um, so for me, in summary, the purpose drives everything. Profit and loss, of course, or sorry, profit and sales, of course. Um, but that's a means to an end. Okay, thanks, that's Sean. I, 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 that's something that I've, I've heard um, people talk about when they talk about organizational culture and having the right culture and, and having that right culture is about having people buying into the reason why you as a business exist. Actually, and it may be relevant for your audience. We've noticed this with Gen Z in particular, because we help with recruitment advertising. And as we know, in most Northern, Euro Northern European territories at the moment, there is a, it's very difficult to recruit and retain the right people. Um, and Gen Z are highly motivated as I think other uh, groups are um, by the purpose of the organization they really want to know what that organization stands for and actually someone last week it wasn't me but it was a brilliant observation actually most customers don't care that much as much as we want them to about sustainability 
but actually your employees do. <laughs> and so your employees care more about it than your customers. And so purely from that perspective, having that wider purpose is really key. If you're a digitally based business where you don't have huge numbers of employees, probably not as important, but say one of our clients, and I think most of you know, Hong Kong Muller still have 700 stores across Europe. You know, being able to get the right people there to serve customers is absolutely vital. So they need to buy into that bigger purpose and it has to be genuine. And that, that... Yes, yeah. It's, it's not just a, a nice slogan that you print on the... It's not a, a yeah, slogan on a mouse map. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I want to move on to talk a little bit about the, the last two years. So we're well, hopefully we're coming towards the end of, of the, the global pandemic. And um, I know how some industries kind of coped with the initial waves of lockdowns and things like that. And I know that we saw you know, some businesses just fall off a cliff. So, you know, anyone that works in hospitality has got my, you know, my sympathies over the last few years. But I'd be really interested to find out about how the brands that, that you run or you work with, how you initially coped with or, or what happened as a result of that, that kind of that first wave of, of lockdowns and the things that we went through. And I think afterwards, I'll kind of go around again and say, how have things changed? So I think I'll start with Mark. So I think, Mark, your, your business is, you know, you, you, you kind of managed and guided all aspects of it through that. So how did the, the pandemic treat you and your business? <laughs> uh, it was incredibly stressful, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the early part. And I'll explain why in a second. But I have to be brutally honest. You know, we were we are in one of those sweet spots where so many other industries have had an, uh, an absolute shocking time. And we become everybody's work wardrobe. Mm -hmm. Everyone was working from home and everybody literally was having their loungewear on or their pajamas on and they'd style it up a little bit and they'd all be sitting on Zoom. And it could quite well have been my product that I was looking at on a Zoom call. So, um, look, from a from a demand point of view, COVID. And, and all the repercussions of it brought so many new customers straight to us. So we were, you know, from that point of view, we were incredibly, incredibly fortunate. The, um, the challenges that faced us were the fact that when demand goes, goes astronomical that quick, how do you cope? Um, you know, have we got enough stock? Where is it? Is it in the right place? Um, you know, we were two weeks before... No, actually, on the week after lockdown, we were due to uh, switch warehouse. So and then we went into lockdown. And the reason why we were switching warehouse is because we were expanding the business and we wanted to have an automated warehouse and we wanted accuracy of stock. So we moved. We were about to move from a, a tiny pick and pack to a much bigger 3PL, a third party warehouse. And we literally had to put the brakes on because everybody you know what's going to happen so it was a particularly stressful time um i won't lie i literally was uh, what what actually happened is the warehouse fell over so the web sales went through the roof and we had to start limiting the number of orders that they could cope with um and yeah i'd literally the, the good news was because we were so well prepared for the move the new warehouse said just move we'll we'll get two trucks to you uh, let's get your stock out and let's get it moved. So initially it was incredibly stressful, but thank God we made the move. 
Um, from that point on, we could let the shackles go, we could mark it hard. Um, and it's, you know, it, it was a fantastic experience that we then went through. So our, you know, our turnover trebled. Um, you know, we went from several million to much, much, much bigger numbers. So there's been a lot of challenges within that, which Paul, well, you know, Paul in particular will be on the, on the receiving end of. So containers, absolute nightmare. Where are they? Where, where are they in the world? Can you get hold of one? And how much is it going to cost you? So, you know, we're, we're fortunate. We own our own factories um, in India, and therefore we could control a large part of um, the supply chain. But it was tough. So the other thing that we had is we supply, not only have we got a very strong website, but we supply wholesale to John Lewis next. Uh, very Fennec, uh, about 150, 200 independent stores across the, uh, across the country. So at the same time as web business was growing, our wholesale base said, we're, yeah, we're, we're closed. We don't want all your forward orders. So we then had, you know, there, there was an awful lot of cost that went into repurposing the stock. So, a re, you know, a, a wholesale customer potentially receives the stock in a different way to a web customer. We were just fortunate. So, again, because we had a nice big flexible warehouse that could that could repurpose the stock quickly we switched it away from wholesale and moved it back into online customers so at the same time as the demand from wholesale plummeted all our online retailers so any retailer with a website john lewis next etc their numbers went through the roof so they were instantly saying i'll take anything you've got so we were taking stock back off of wholesale and sending it out in a in a different direction. So, listen, I, I, I can't lie. We've been we've been very fortunate. Um, we've we've had a good we've had a good couple of years. That, that is good to hear, and it, and it is those challenges of having to having to gear up rapidly for a completely unforeseen event that must have been really really challenging. Um, if I can look at if I can go across the pool at, at QBC because I. I I don't know what to think really about how you how how your business would have been impacted by by the pandemic. So could you give us a kind of an outline? Yeah, I think I'll do, and I think there's two just for the purposes of managing the conversation. I'll, I'll take the first question, David, about how did we manage and deal with the impact short term. And I might paint quite a rosy picture. The actual more interesting part of the pandemic, I think, will develop in the second part of the conversation around the new normal. So I think exactly like Mark said there, and um, I would characterize Ultimately, the pandemic's been transformational for our business, properly transformational, but at the moment it hits. Um, Mark's a little bit more eloquent than I. I'd, I'd characterise it as a blunt trauma to our heads. It was blunt trauma to heads. Blunt trauma defined as sales, which I've talked about as being quite important, almost overnight went to zero. Um, staff sent home. So many hundreds of thousands of staff sent home by the way, we had no laptops, so how, how do we figure that out? What do they actually do when they're at home? And I think certainly for the first two or three weeks of the pandemic, we were probably facing, a, yeah, probably an existential threat <coughs> of existence. We didn't know if we'd actually make it or not make it, and a lot of retailers haven't, um, and, and, and I think that's terribly sad. To cut a long story short, a very long story short, we were able to class ourselves as essential, and then as some of the, the things that Mark alluded to there, we could continue to trade, but... Um, I think it's quite interesting, some of Mark's observations about the, the nightwear business. So we've got three separate and distinct divisions within QVC. A fashion division, which is apparel, nightwear, jewelry and accessories. 
And that was proper blunt trauma. Sales there is everything pivoted into whether it's relax at home or cyber jammies or loungewear. No one wanted all the stuff that we bought the next nine months worth of sales for. So major issues and concerns and costs about all the bets you make in a fashion business around lead times, all the stock dresses that people don't want because they're knocking out, major problem for us and our business and our warehousing. And um, But similar at the same time, definite opportunities and green shoots in, let's just say, clothes that the people would wear well in front of the screen. And I think Mark took us through that quite nicely. So, But overall, a fashion business like most Certainly all, all bricks and mortar, but a lot of fashion retailers really struggled to sell what they'd expected to sell through 2020. We were no different. Interestingly, our beauty division, our second beauty division, that was okay. That was okay. Everyone away from having you know, salons or getting hair done out with the house to real salon at home type things. So we saw some really nice upticks in cosmetics, skincare, nail care, as people were pay, certainly spending and investing a lot of what more in their not health, but how they looked indoors, trying to make themselves feel good spiritually and inside as well as out. So beauty business actually, I don't want to say flat lines, but did sort of okay through 2020. And then we saw the most perverse situation ever in home. We probably saw five to 10 years growth in a six month period within home. Um, we couldn't get enough of home. Um, everyone was investing in their home and electronics and their garden as they moved away from outside to inside. So the challenges we had were a fashion business in the doldrums, a beauty business, okay, and a business in home where we get probably five, 10 years worth of growth in a six-year period. From a, from a stock point of view, I think Mark alluded it, follow the signs. Where is she going? What, we can, what can we get more of? And what, brand, what have brands got that they want to deal with us and sell us? So big challenges around stock, but that was really about really us get stopped trying to understand where our customer was, what she needed, what she wanted, and how we could tap into her needs through that first eight to 10 months. Um, and it was really about us being fast, opportunistic, and really pivoting around what was going on in that wider um, environment. And finance, interestingly, wasn't particularly material to us. We'd come out 2020, that first year. I know I'm painting a rosy story. Wait till we go into 2021, but I'm, I'm trying to characterize the, we actually ended 2020 in a really nice position. We're able to take advantage of the government's furlough screen. And Sean, you talked about businesses wanting hearts and purpose. One of our little, we call ourselves a business with a heart. Yes, we're interested in the top line, but we're really interested in employee health, well-being. You know, the ninth year in a row, we've been rated as you know a top place to work across the UK. And we take that very, very seriously. And that culture, it's very important. I set the right to in that. And exactly, so we paid all the furlough money that the government gave to us. We didn't have to, but that's about trying to do the right thing and giving back because we did benefit from it. Definitely found some tricky issues around logistics, you know, where things had slowed down. I mean, we can all remember social distancing, you know, you weren't able to, let's put it, I'll put it, our warehouse wasn't as efficient as we would like it to be, or it would necessarily have been. You can't put all your staff in it. They can only do so many things, so many people unpicking vans, loading vans. I think the service terms, how we then translated that to our customers, the customer experience, delivery days went long, things were thrown over. I'm sort of exaggerating to make the point here to say we're just... Flowers were thrown over gardens. Things were getting delivered at the wrong time to the wrong place as our sort of supply chain and delivery network went a little bit. I think it went into meltdown a little bit. I think that being said, because of the relationship we have with our customers, and I talked about relationships earlier, we've got quite a lot of goodwill in the business. And I think she was 
quite happy to sort of forgive and work with us through that. But um, I think how 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 it went from being blunt trauma, existential threat, to actually a really nice position for us in the business and home. Okay in beauty, but definite serious challenges around product availability and stock across a fashion business. Something she wanted, something she didn't want. So that's how you try and manage that part of the risk. I think the interesting or the more interesting part, David, I'd probably draw a line under that to say it was tough, but we got there. But that's really about how the organisation came behind a goal. And then as leaders, how you're able to mobilise and energise and engage teams remotely rather than in the office. The story didn't end there, but I'll touch on that maybe in the next section following your next question. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, I think both you, you and Mark have talked about the the immense amount of stress that 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 I think it would have hit anyone at that point in time, regardless regardless of industry. And it is very much about you know, are you able to pull the team together and work collectively towards a common goal? Uh, exactly as Sean was saying earlier, uh, uh, rather than you know if you have got people that are there purely because it's a paycheck. You know, sometimes you don't get the same kind of buy-in. So it's having the right team, the right kind of leadership there. Sean, if I could, I mentioned that, if I could ask you again, what are your experiences of what happened with businesses that you work with or businesses you've got experience of over that, over that kind of lockdown, initial COVID period? From my own business perspective, very, very simply, our turnover collapsed by 70% um, virtually overnight. A lot of what we do is, I often describe as discretional. So, you know, brands can't not buy product because if they haven't got any product, they can't sell it. But they can choose not to run a social media campaign or invest in employee engagement or whatever it happens to be. So all of that stuff got shunted to the side. There were some positives to that. It gave me actually some brain space for first time in eight years and all sorts of other stuff that I then began to re-strategize re my business. But I guess what might be more interesting for your audience is the what we saw with our clients, which was after the sort of initial worry of, you know, we're all going to die and no, we're not, but we're going to have to try and live through this thing, was a real acceleration of everything that they were then planning to do. And that acceleration was just as much about, say, in the case of Hunkermuller, digital acceleration, or even to some businesses, accelerating them folding like most of the Arcadia brands. So I don't personally believe the Arcadia brands died because of the pandemic. They've just died earlier than they would have anyway. So it's almost accelerated everything. And I think Philip um, at Hunkermuller described they had 10 years of change in two years. So everything was very concentrated and very focused, particularly obviously around digital, uh, digital transformation, digital leadership indeed now being described di digital maturity which is what people are are aiming for so what was a real positive observation was the uh, resilience of many people we worked with all businesses whether we work with them or not their ability to adapt and change rip up the 2019 strategies which really <laughs> meant nothing anymore and suddenly start saying okay what does the next year look like and actually, let's just park the five-year strategy. Let's just work out the year. And I think Mark and Paul both touched on the logistics issues because, yeah, of course, the digital demand was there. But as we know from our clients in Europe, the DCs in uh, 
Europe mainland trying to fulfill those orders had social distancing rules, so they simply couldn't fulfill the orders. So yeah, you, you kind of got a benefit and then a problem to deal with. So overall, I was just amazed at how resilient people were, how adaptive they were. And I still to this day think, even though that would probably lead to burnout, why we don't take some of that spirit of really uh, thinking you know, much more agilely about problems and that spirit of dealing with a crisis into our everyday business. <laughs> Sadly, we might be facing another one now, but for different reasons. But, you know, I think there's some real positive learnings from the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that the, that, 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 you know, the businesses that have survived, those ones that were agile, it, it's very easy, I think, to slip back into old ways of working yeah. and not, not learning from those things and, and interesting that you said that um you, you the, the i guess the shock of the pandemic you know brought a, a a speedy end to businesses that probably didn't have a future anyway and I, I look back to to 2008 when we had the global financial crisis and we yep. we must have had brands that went bust on a weekly basis for yeah. about a three four month period i think with all of those you'd say the same thing they were all brands that didn't really have a future didn't really have a plan for the future and that shock happened and it caused an early demise of something that probably would have happened within the next couple of years anyway um so, oh sorry i was just going to finally add to that and again it might be useful for your students and i'm sure that the rest of the panel know this but you know when we're helping to capture and define strategy with our clients. You know, we say change on the upward ascendance curve, not when you're on the way down, when, you need, when you're forced to. And that's the thing. Most people leave it till it's too late. You know, you're forced to change and you should be looking at that change, not change for change sake, but actually, can we do this in a slightly different way, a better way, smarter way? What are the, what are the market trends telling us, customer trends, all of that. To change on the way up is a lot easier, <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> And Sasha, how how did this how did the pandemic impact those those kind of the small brands that were just starting out? What 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 were the impacts there? So, um, like Sean said, um, a lot of the brands that had launched that I was consulting for um, <clears throat> worked with me at the beginning to strategize what were they going to do. Um, so a lot of them shifted product category. For example, a footwear brand who specialized in um, wider. Uh, shoes for women larger sizes they focused on workwear shoes they shifted to sneakers um, a handbag brand that I work with shifted to become sort of more lifestyle um, and obviously I, I was an extra to help support them so um, they utilized my services a little bit less however um, the loan side of the business um, like the business advisor side that I work on that actually was the busiest we've ever been during the pandemic. Um, I think there was a 50% um, increase in uh, you know, traffic towards the website, people looking into government-backed loans. Um, majority of um, you know, the applicants that I spoke to were people on furlough who had this great idea, but they never had the time to work on it. You know, a lot of city professionals who, you know, didn't, were on furlough and they thought, you know what, might as well live out my dream. Um, you know, also lots of people were unemployed. Um, so it, it gave, I think, a lot of um, the startups sort of time to think, what do I actually want out of life? Do I really want to be working an office job? Can I make the dream that I've had a reality? 
So actually, we've been the busiest um, in terms of supporting um, businesses financially, loan wise, um, you know, starting up. And a lot of the businesses, yeah, a lot of applicants have gone back to work because we see through with mentoring after. And they've kept this, kept whatever they've started as a sideline with a view that in three years they can quit the day job. So, um, yeah. I, I, I like that. I, I'm, I'm, we've, I think we're, I'm, sure, I'm sure we've all heard stories of people that have taken that opportunity. And again, it's that shock of something has happened that's caused people to look at, well, what's my real mm. passion and following that passion. So I, I love the fact that it's happening. Yeah. And yeah. um, yeah. could I just stay with you, Sasha, just ask kind of for, or, or your opinions on, um, you, know, you know, have things settled down now? Um, and, and I guess, what does, what does the, the new normal for, for the businesses you work with look like? So I think over Christmas, there was definitely some kind of uncertainty. I mean, a lot of the majority of the clients I work with, they're individuals, um, you know, people are worrying about bills. They're worrying about increases in prices for everything. Um, so there was a, was a bit of a wobble. Um, <clears throat> we're still seeing an increase in hit rate on, um, you know, the loans. People are still thinking, you know, they want they want to start their own businesses, but things have started to settle down. Um, we're still awfully busy. I'd say in terms of the consultancy side of things, there's still people want to start, but they are they're starting, but with a lot of caution. Um, you know, there's definitely uncertainty there, particularly with now the war. Um, I had an applicant yesterday that I spoke to. She's already established jewellery brand. She wanted to wholesale and all the prop kits that she'd ordered were coming from Ukraine. So um, there's just always something. So um, yeah, I'd say there's a levelling out with a little bit of caution. Okay. And Sean, if I ask you the, the same question, how, how are you seeing the, I guess, the, you know, have things calmed down a bit? And is there a new normal that started to kind of establish itself in your eyes? I think the new normal for me and those I work with would be one of being continually alert to the fact the world's a much more volatile place now mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. Um, so in that respect, yeah, people were, the people I've worked with, whether they're big or small, actually, are much more focused on the year ahead rather than a three or five year plan. Of course, you want to know where you're going to be, but with so much uncertainty, Let's try and get to the end of next year and work out what our one-year goals are. Um, clearly, the, the 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 pandemic, certainly within the UK, because um, rightly or wrongly, we led coming out of it in terms of restrictions. I think the mood, the consumer mood in the UK was much more optimistic, which then feeds through to the business mood. Um, not so much, say, in the Netherlands, which is one of our, our more markets, um, biggest markets, because they had restrictions much longer and they've only just come out of it so it depends on the market but generally i think with covid coming out of it it appeared to you know we're emerging out of it new confidence those businesses still around are really looking for growth now some are rebounding to better performances than they had pre-pandemic you know there's a whole list of them that are doing better than they were in 2019 one of our clients is in the homeware market as uh, paul said earlier i mean amazing their growth during the pandemic was you know astounding and now they're using that cash to invest and open more stores and all the rest of it but of course what's happened in the last month is we're now hit with another crisis so i guess the mood at the moment is um 
nervous, subdued, unsure, and perhaps, I guess, what can we learn from the pandemic about how we responded, et cetera, et cetera. So I think your question was probably written maybe three or four weeks ago when, <laughs> you know, with the world events. And you're right, um, absolutely right about Ukraine and everything else, you know, Hong Kongala. You know, one of their biggest markets is Russia and Belarus. That They were their key expansion markets. They decided against China to expand in Russia and Belarus. Well, that's over. Their growth strategies in tatters. They won't spend any money for another year and so on. And then that goes all the way down the chain. Um, but, you know, they'll find another market to grow in, I'm sure. So, yeah, I think your question was how have, have things settled down? They did. And now they're all over the place again. <laughs> and I guess Paul if I ask you is, is that the same for you because I'm, I'm intrigued to find out that you talked about that that mixture of your different product lines altering as we went into the pandemic with like huge homeware sales and, and a fall in some of the fashion areas it, do you think that's permanently changed or, or are things going to switch back to maybe the, the way that they were if I had the answer to that David I'd be a very rich man and I think that's sort of part of the narrative I'm going to try and I'm going to try and um, talk about what I think your question is around the new normal. Um, 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 I don't think we've found the new normal, quite frankly. And I think for me, um, when I speak to people, I think my big, not the buzzword, but I think unpredictability for me is the new normal. I think it's very hard and I'll expand on that as I go through, but I don't think we've found the new normal yet post-pandemic and I think we may have thought we had about a month ago you're right Sean we might have thought we'd a point of view but everything's gone a little bit funny but I just want to talk about some of the our journey to where we are around that new normal and I'll tackle specifically your question I talked a little bit I mean I'm going to try and weave this because we're on a fashion and finance forum we'll talk about a, a fashion new normal and then a finance new normal if, if that makes sense and um, I talked earlier about 2020 hugely challenging but bottom line we came out of it quite well going into 2021 the start of our new normal we're still in lockdown saw that same sort of behavior home really strong beauty really strong fashion still in the doldrums april the 15th 2021 as we start to come out almost an almost immediate overnight change in consumer behavior as restrictions lifted we saw a fashion business going from significant double digit negative comps to significant double-digit positive, double-digit comps, and in some cases, triple-digit comps. And that's that's almost overnight, almost overnight, overnight, maybe 72 hours that quick. We saw beauty business that had been okay, almost overnight go into significant double-digit negative comps. And actually, when I look at our business relative to the market, it's not just us. We see a UK beauty market, a home market going from a to A minus 30% almost overnight. And then home, within that home that we thought was very, very strong, elements of home collapsed, you know, so we saw, when I say collapsed, so kitchen food might still have been okay, but things like electronics, electronics, big ticket items, where people had made their investments to be locked down, they switched off and wanted to make the spend elsewhere. So the first thing when we talk about the new normal from a fashion or product or brand's point of view, we saw trajectories that we hadn't really seen before happen overnight. If something's looking good, it tends to go plus one, plus three, plus five, plus 10, plus 15 as it builds momentum. Similarly, if it's declining momentum, we're seeing 30, 40, 50 basis points decline overnight. So 
massive flux and change within our product and brand portfolio. And quite frankly, David, we still see massive flux and change within our brand. It's very difficult for us to get a sense of what the customer's doing, what she wants and what she doesn't want. And I'll talk about current day in a little bit second. So that unpredictability within the product portfolio is concerning for me when you're looking at commitments measured in millions or tens of millions of pounds on bets that you're making around the product. From a finance point of view, the new normal looks a bit like this to me. Mid-21, mid-21, definite chatter around freight and supply chain issues, definite chatter around inflationary cost price issues from our brands across the Middle East. Mid-21, that very, very quickly, that chatter very, very quickly became major issues. And major issues probably in a four-week period where the availability of vessels or the availability of containers went and was challenged. The price of vessels and containers went from maybe 3,000 a container to 17,000 a container. <coughs> Someone's going to have to absorb that somehow. Cost price inflation from our brand started feeding into some of our pricing and we, we need to decide, do we take the hit? Do we pass on that? Do we take the hit? Do we pass someone to customers? So real what had become chatter became major issues around inflation in our cost prices and availability of vessels. Challenges that caused, we came out of the season with, long story short, we came out of the season not selling everything we wanted to sell things were late. Bring it into the new normal today, David, and everything, I think everything's related. The way I see it's still unpredictable and we've not got a real sense or confidence or really clear outlook or forecast of what's coming. The shipping challenges are still there, you know, and they're not, they're not, they're not assumed to go away until 2023. So we've got another year of intense shipping challenges. That inflation that I talked about from June 2021 is now feeding through right into consumer prices in the UK, whether it's food, whether it's energy, all but that inflationary pressure we saw six and nine months ago is now feeding right into all sectors across the UK. That's a big problem for us and try to figure out, particularly with finance. What do we do with that? Do we absorb it? And by the way, it's not 50 or 60p. It's measured in high seven-digit numbers, that absorption. The energy prices, forthcoming tax sizes. And, and then looking back, look, when, is the new, when was the last time we've got a normal point of view in the business? And as retailers, you like to look at what happened last year. It'll be better. We've got to look back three years now to try and see what was going on three years ago. But Sean said, three years ago, the world was a very, very, very different place. So... I'm looking across a landscape from my vantage point just now that says very negative for brittle consumer confidence and very negative or brittle consumer sentiment. The last thing I saw yesterday, some quite concerning statistics about customers' um, intent to spend more or less than last year in categories. Everyone's trying to get control and manage their own budget because they don't know what their expenses are yet. And, and I also, we, 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 we also see, and Sean referred to, despite all that, we've got talent migration. People are trying to reassess what do they want from lives, values. If, if you're in retail just now, it's quite a buoyant market if you're not happy in your role. So when I talked about our business and some of the, some of the pastoral care that we give to our employees and the culture, we're trying to grapple with all these product issues, call it fashion, all these finance issues, which are things that impact the bottom line, and all these probably people issues where people are trying to figure out what do I want to do, what do I want from my life, what do I want from my career, and I get so there's many, many challenges. 
I find it really difficult to say, have you found that new normal yet? I don't think we have. And frankly, I don't think we're going to find it for the next 12 months yet till some of these evolving events overseas play through. I think it's, I think there's opportunity there, but there's concern in there, but there may be a little bit, there may be a little bit bigger than certainly anything I've experienced in, you know, the best part of 20 years. So it's really, it's a tough, tough old market out there and for customers and a tough market for retailers and that's, we've not found a new normal yet. Pockets of the business, really strong. Pockets of the business, challenged, but we've not been able to get that really clear. Where do we need to go and where do we need to go quickly across fashion, beauty and home to really manage our way through it commercially? Mm. I, I, I understand what you mean with the, where you talked about the level of demand changing almost on a daily basis because we saw that with... Um, you know, every time there was a, a Downing Street announcement about either restrictions being put in place or restrictions being removed, it changed the behaviours of all of the students that we dealt with as to whether they wanted to come into class, whether they're prepared to sign up to new programmes. So for, for us, we felt that every time there was a piece of news. And I, I guess from my perspective, it's you know whether someone wants to come into a classroom or not. From your perspective, it's probably a container that's actually already on the ocean that's making its way across to the UK and you made a bet based on what you thought demand was going to be based on the conditions at the time and those conditions are yeah you know changing based on what the government's perspective on how to handle the the pandemic um, but I, I would actually like to, to move to Mark because Mark I, I, you, you'd be dealing with a single product line and I guess your views on, on on how your business shape has changed and what that looks like you know do you have any ideas or are you very much in the same boat as the, the rest of the panel at the moment. Well, the, f the first thing I want to say is um, it's been uh, it's been great from a small business point of view to listen to the wider circle of retail. So, because you know, particularly when you are, you are in a smaller environment, you you quite often you, you don't feel like you're working in a silo, but you're making decisions based on your business more specifically. So. The whole volatility side, um, obviously, with the flip side of being a product that was in demand, Paul was just alluding to the fact that literally at the turn of a switch, customers are changing their minds. They, they no longer need nightwear to the same degree that they previously did. So if you look on, you know, anyone can go on and look at Google Trends. And if you look at the nightwear trend now, it's not in my favour. They're moving away. They're, they're buying dresses. They're buying. They're, 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 what are people searching for? They're searching for dresses. They're searching for swimwear. The, the world is finally, to a certain extent, turning its eyes back out of the home. And therefore, my product is now under threat. So bearing in mind that we're quite specific, you know, it's, it's a very specific product. We only make nightwear. We're now going to be up against it. So, you know, as a business, we are working absolutely flat out. We've got all the pressures that Paul talks about our costs through the entire supply chain from fabric to accessories to shipping to I mean literally the the conversation I had with the 3PL um, in December was right we need to put your prices up by seven percent so we're now gonna we're now coming into this position of meeting reduced demand every part of my business is more expensive than it previously uh, previously was Paul was talking about the fact that his brands are coming to him and now saying, right, we're going to have to put our prices up. We're having exactly the same conversation as, as Paul's having. So how much of these significant increases, and we're not talking single digits, we're talking double, triple, 
Um, we had a one particular, a big, a big chunk of our um, one particular fabric. The first quote they came back with was with a forty percent increase. So, to, to for us to walk up to a retailer such as Paul or even our end customer that's buying off us um, on the website on a product that's now losing demand at a time when customers are even more challenged and asking questions, do I really need that extra? I've got to somehow convince them to still keep buying my pyjamas. And also, what's the price that I'm going to be able to put out there and still make money? So, you know, we're, we're taking, we're now having different conversations by saying this year is going to be tough. Um, at the same time, and this comes back to what Sean was saying as well, um, you know, from, from our business point of view, this is the perfect time to be investing more, to be talking more, to be doing what Paul was saying. We're going to replatform. We're literally in the process of replatforming our website. Uh, we want to make sure that our customer has the smoothest, simplest, straightforward process through our website. So in four clicks, they're done. Um, that's, you know, this is where we need to be investing our money. So at the same time as there's all this, this inflationary pressure, we're having the conversation saying, let's keep spending because we're going to have to work extra hard to keep talking to these customers. Um, we are now working with a company called More2 who do a great job of helping companies really project themselves forward. Um, and again, it's back to what Paul was saying about data. It's, it's being more personal. So, you know, we're, we're now investing in as much information as possible to be able to speak to individual customers almost so when we do communicate with our customers, we are trying to make it as personal to that customer to make them feel special, um, to make sure that our product still stands out in what is a, a, a which is going to be a tough time. So, yeah, it's um, volatile would certainly be a, a, a good way of, of putting it. Now, because of the last two years, we have banked a healthy position. So we are in a position where we can invest. Um, but it's yeah, it, it's it's going to be a challenging, challenging couple of years ahead. And then Paul, do you want to add something now? Yeah, I just I, I think it's a really, and I think it's I don't think you'd be alone there, Mark. As whether as a brand or as a retailer with all those pressures, I think what's quite what's quite we talked about this at the start. You know, we talked about retail being about relationships, business being about relationships, commerce being about relationships. My point of view in this, you know, for whether it's your finance or fashion or buying, it's those relationships, I think, that really allow you to manage and navigate your way through the peaks and troughs that we all get in business, whether it's personal or relationships across brands, vendors and the supply place. And I think when you were talking about earlier, David, you know, we talked about retail being quite a tight knit community. It's these relationships that really help you a survive, but also grow. And it's something that I think that I think you don't really understand the meaning of retails about relationships till you till you're in some of these troubled times, etc. And I just that would be a big if people want to take a big call out from this call from me, it would be about the importance of those relationships at a personal and a professional level. Thanks, that Paul. And I, I'm actually going to ask you your question, Paul, because I know that you you've got a a tight deadline. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, uh, on a question around the high streets. So um, it, it's a question that I know is, is debated quite a lot in my classrooms um, as to whether there is a future in the high streets or whether everything is just going online and we should just shut up the, shut up the, the high streets. So what are your views on, on you know, having a physical presence? Um, 
my views, everyone will have a different point of view on this. I'd probably say online's probably the best bet, but not the only bet. And what do I mean by that going a little bit further out? Amazon probably haven't put a foot wrong in the last 20 years. Amazon wouldn't be investing in the high street if they didn't feel there was a future in the high street. So the first thing is probably the best bet if you were starting out a business, but not the only bit. I think my own point of view, I think for physical stores, you'll, 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 you'll see that continual demarcation um, across the state in bricks and mortar. From a high street point of view, I think it'll be really local communities feel. I think it'll be niche. It's something that offers a point of difference to walking up and down Oxford Street. If you live in London, should not equal walking up and down Streatham High Street or a high street wherever you live. That, that sort of local community niche thing, I think that's where the high street will go. I think it'll become a blend of social shopping. People will want there to go eat, be excited, meet friends, etc., and then shop as part of that social experience. The UK needs a, high, a thriving high street. I don't think the markets, the markets will let high streets in Britain stay boarded up and desolate. So I think the market will, will the market will play its part, but I think they'll evolve to be more community, local, niche-based than they are just now. And I think you can see evidence in that in some of the, I don't want to say cooler or hipper areas of or hipster areas of cities across Britain, but that sort of eclectic mix you get of restaurants, shops, curios, I think I see that moving out. I also think the government has a role to play here. I do think government needs to have a real look at rates and regulations, even around things like parking, forget me, to allow that high street to develop, breathe and grow again. So that's my view in the high street. And out of town, I think, you know, I think you... I'm not sure you can ever really, really experience a brand online. I think some of the big brands will be they're investing in the high, their high, their flagship stores just now. And I think these flagship stores will become more experiential that allow you to really touch, taste, and see and feel what that brand's all about. I, I might have the name wrong here. I probably will. Either Gucci or Prada or one of the big fashion houses have just chucked an awful lot of money into their flagship store. I think it's in France. I've probably got that wrong, but, but it's certainly not in the UK. But you know what? It's not necessarily about the purchase. It's more about the experience and what that brand stands for. I think you'll see those out-of-town destination areas remain but they won't be like MS of old when I was there, Shelley was there. You won't see packed filled racks and racks and rows and rows of product. It'll become it'll become touch and feel. People will shop and experience it, but I think they'll still transact online. So High Street Local, out of town, will be there, or destination will be there to really, to really um give you a sense of what that brand's all about and the experience of that brand. You'll touch it, feel it, play with it, try it on, do what you will but then I think you'll go and transact online. Online, Amazon wouldn't do it, David, if they didn't think there was something in it. And I'll bet in Amazon, I'll bet in Jeff Bezos, if that's okay. Uh, Mark, you got your hand up there. Yeah, just, I mean, bearing in mind that our business is, is somewhat volatile as it currently stands at the minute, um, because we have... You know, we, we're supplying either a big department store like John Lewis, but we've, we've got about 150 independent stores, which are the, you know, I'm just trying to think, you know, we're in Chelmsford. So we're the quadrant, for example, if you want to keep it local. So um, we supply an awful lot of those small stores. And the one thing which has been really positive over the last six weeks is the wholesale business has probably got stronger. And I mean on the small independent side. So not so much on the John Lewis and the next side, more on the smaller independent. So there is, you know, because the because customer is constantly evolving and constantly moving to, to somewhere where they feel comfortable. Is it that shopping local now helps them 
that they feel better shopping in a local independent store. So, you know, on a daily basis, we're still getting independent stores that are ringing us up saying, your stuff is flying, it's going great, and I want some more of it. So, you know, I, it's, I, I don't, I think back to what Paul was saying, absolutely is, you know, it's never going to be the end of the high street. It's about somebody, it, if you're going to survive in the high street, you've got to do it well. Um, and you've got to, you've got, you are going to have to make sure you're providing an experience. So quite a lot of these stores that we supply are laundry stores and it's all about fit. Um, so I'm sure Sasha, um, with all her experience um, and also, you know, Shelley as well, you know, if, if a customer can walk in and feel special, the chances are they're probably going to spend three or four times more than they previously would have done. And then they're going to go back and they're not going to, you know, despite the fact that they can get it cheaper elsewhere, they are actually going to pay more because they're getting that experience and they're getting that service. So um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to keep evolving, but the high street is certainly not dead. And Sasha, I can see, I can see you nodding around. Yeah, just that? on the back of what Paul and Mark have said, um, we've definitely seen um, <clears throat> a trend for even though startups, you know, focus online, there's definitely a community of pop-ups and, uh, spaces even in central London where they're supporting small businesses um, you know there's great concept stores in um, you know uh, even around Oxford Street um, you know there's one pajama brand that I've been working with they had a concept store just off Oxford Street with a few different brands and um, it's really worked for them one it's attracting press um, getting a lot of press attention customers are coming in because they want to feel and you know see the product um, and also these startups you know, are there, they're talking to customers and people like to hear the story. I would say to clients, you know, you've got a story to tell, you've got a backstory. Um, and a lot of customers are liking this, they're liking that kind of relationship with the brand. Um, definitely moving, they just like to feel that they're, they're doing good and, you know, um, supporting other people. Um, so yeah, I think, <clears throat> yes, online's important, but I feel like um, concept stores, also, what I've seen with a few brands is, like you were saying, Mark, a lot of the smaller independent stores that are high street stores have been doing well because people don't want to drive and necessarily being that big sort of shop, you know, Westfield environment, because people are still nervous about COVID. They are staying closer to home and shopping locally. Um, so, yeah, I've definitely seen, you know, what Mark and Paul have said as well. I'd just like to pick up on that, that some of the remarks you were making around community and we talked about, I think Sean was talking about Generation Z and purpose, I think as well there's a bit of, I don't want to say cynicism, but these people want details with a purpose, we talked about that a little bit earlier on, but I think customers want to do a bit of good and they want to support not necessarily a brand, but they know if they're buying from an independent or local, they're supporting someone's livelihood. It's not just the bottom line. And I think there's that authenticity in there about retailers and knowing it might be a little bit more expensive, fine, but they're actually doing something for someone's livelihood. That sense of it not being not being some corporate monolith or leviathan. I think there's something in that. And that, I think that's where the high street will will thrive from and get better at. So I, I, I just, I think everything you said there really elucidated, I think, what that high street will become. And I, I see one of the things even we are doing, we're just thinking about, is there something for our business to start doing things with more local or up and coming brands, designers, call it what you will, just to tack in, tackle into this authentic need that people want to be doing something good, if that makes any sense, but there's something out there quite powerful. 
Mm. I, I just want to, I'm going to um, move on to Sean in a second, but um, it, I, I, a lot of things you're saying kind of do really resonate because I, and I do, I, I do spot some of those things happening. So, you know, that there, there are, you know, I, I'm talking right now from Chelmsford and in uh, even, you know, prior to the pandemic, when the, the kind of like the, the new developments happened in, in Chelmsford, it was a mixture of lots of kind of restaurants and places to go out, as well as shops. And those shops tended to be higher end shops. Um, they, they tend to be shops where you look at them and think, surely with that amount of retail space and the actual product you've got in there, you're not going to make much money. I, I can't see how you're going to get the customers, but you're there because it, it's, you know, people get to see and experience your brand there. And I think, as you said, Paul, they'll probably go and buy online, but it, it gives them a showcase. Um, I, I do wonder, we also in Chelmsford, in a different part of Chelmsford, we've got a, 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 an old BHS store that's been empty for as long as BHS have been out of business. We've now got a Debenhams store, which is probably going to be as empty you know, for as long. I, I just want to, are we going to be able to see those kind of areas repurposed? Or, you know, I just wonder what's going to happen to those kind of areas. We've got these big department stores that are gone. What's going to fill the gap there? And I apologise, Sean, for being very specific there. No, well, I can give you a really good example. And I, our closest town is a place called Banbury in Oxfordshire. And uh, the BHS is closed and the Debenhams is closed. Mm -hmm. So almost the same as your example. Yep. Um, it's just recently reopened with Lock 21, which is um, the, the, the back of the shops uh, go onto a, the canal and they've turned it into an eating, meeting, working, greeting space and social space. It was actually funded by the council. The council stepped in and bought the mall, which was going to go bust. Council, I thought at the time, had made a mad decision, but apparently councils can borrow money very, very cheaply, um, far better than private enterprise. So the whole centre's been completely re-energised with a whole emphasis, as Paul said, around community and local. And it's buzzing. And there's families eating out. And this was a really awful BHS. And it, the, the Debenhams wasn't much better, to be quite honest. And actually, so what's replaced it is better. But I see that as being more the exception rather than the rule at the moment. Um, I actually worked on the Bill Grimsey review, for anyone who knows him. So he um, rivaled um, Mary Portis um, with trying to get a, a blueprint for UK high streets. Um, this was about five years ago. Um, and do download it if you ever have the time. There was lots of uh, recommendations and conclusions. But, you know, the one that stuck out for me was that however much we want a vibrant high street or town centre again, the way it's structured is against it happening because there are so many stakeholders, so many people involved, so many different landlords, you know, it's not like a shopping mall, which is owned by one person to try and get any consensus around that to create, you know, 20% of cafes and 30% of this. And it's just almost impossible, which is why it's failed almost miserably every time there's a, uh, a government review. I don't know what the answer is other than short of, you know, real, real direct government intervention to help the high streets. Um, but also to answer your uh, first question, which I think is a key one, which everyone asks around are the high streets dead? Honestly, no, of course they're not. But the mix is changing. And it is also depends on the category of product. So if I look at, say, the gambling industry, 
Vlad Brooks and William Hill and people. I'm I'm shocked they've survived so long because why do you need to go into a physical place to do that? So at some point they're going to go. You won't need a betting shop on a high street. So that for me is a clear one that will go. But equally, we do need more community spaces. Hospitality is still thriving. I can't believe we're actually, you know, can cost to keep opening these places, but they do, you know. So, you know, there's definitely a mixture happening. And certainly, you know, our observation working with fashion retail is the strongest businesses are the ones with a real multi-channel operation, a real true omni-channel operation, yeah? And just look at Next, you know. I mean, okay, they've closed their smaller stores, but they're still opening big stores. They've got a massively thriving online business, but it works because if you order it online and it doesn't fit, you can nip it into the store, uh, the store at the retail park at the weekend, and it's no hassle, and it all works together. And that is, I think, the future. But it does mean that some of our high streets at the moment, particularly in the UK, look really, really tired um, and in need of some TLC. Yeah, I, I I see that when I I um, when I visit my parents, they live in a um, in a small town just outside Derby, and oh. it's a former industrial town. And every time I go up there, the, the high streets got smaller. It, yeah. It's it's at one end. You know, I remember when I was young, it was a thriving high street with loads of shops, and gradually the shops have closed down, and you've got a much much smaller portion of the high street that's really still operational. And I, I think something points out there, Sean, about having those you know, different landlords different exactly. owners all with different agendas means yeah. it's very difficult to get a a consistent plan yeah. uh, i actually heard an interview with a, a a big commercial landlord that owns shopping centers um yeah. a, a while ago and um they were asked the question is the high street dead and if it is is this a problem for your business model because you own these these you know these big quite high-end retail malls and they said that, that they're not worried at all because no. their view is that people will always want to go out somewhere. Yeah. And if you're creating an environment where they want to go, it doesn't matter if it's a restaurant or a shop in their eyes, or if it's a, a showcase for your product, as long as they're creating an environment people want to go to, there will be footfall and people will pay rent for those spaces, um, which I thought was quite interesting, but the high street's probably not got that. But Sean, you're saying? One final point on that, which may sound slightly off point, but it's connected to consumer spending, which is that the, the paradox, of course, is well, maybe the paradox or the other factor is that we have an acute housing shortage. So one of the recommendations of our review was that we need to make actually a lot more residential in these town centres and turn it over. And that then builds in the community and particularly for more elderly people where you could then have health care and social services next door to them rather than them having to travel out of town so you know the implications of this are huge and it it occurred to me on a personal level there doesn't seem to be that macro planning in place there's lots of little in initiatives they're all firefighting things but there's no sort of macro planning and that's what's missing mm. um but in some ways uh there are, there are two sides of the same coin, the whole online versus physical and the town centres. The town centres almost would have, you know, deteriorated anyway. Um, but I think any retailer that's strong will be strong online and potentially strong with a physical presence, whether that's in someone else's store as a wholesale arrangement or their own stores. Thank you very much for that, Sean. And and time has unfortunately kind of run out on us today. So um, I, I, I'm going to have to call things to a close, but I, I 
first of all, I want to say thank you to, to Paul, to Mark, to Sasha and to Sean. Um, you've been brilliant company this lunchtime. I, I've learned so much and I could probably Sorry. carry on talking for about another three hours. Uh, so it's fun, really interesting finding out about your industry. But thank you so much for sharing your time. I know that our, our listeners on our podcast are going to absolutely love this episode because right. I... I've loved it. And normally when I love stuff, they tend to love it as well. So thank you so much. Um, you'd be more than welcome to come back again. I've got a whole list of questions that I wanted to go through that, um, that I I'm hopefully can pick your brains on at, at another time. But um, Thank you once again. And thanks to everyone that's listening. Um, we will catch up with you on our Wednesday um, regular podcast. But for now, stay safe. And thank you very much for downloading. Good, guys. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. Thanks very much, David. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Thanks.